Hey everyone, today on Noon, I have the pleasure of introducing you to my friend Colton, a paramedic with a diverse background and a wealth of experience. Join us as we learn of his remarkable journey from a 911 paramedic to a film set medic and beyond. We'll explore his interests in EMS advocacy and politics, his non-traditional path into EMS, and his role as a sterilization technician. Get ready for an intriguing episode filled with valuable insights and captivating stories. I'm certain you'll be inspired by his unique perspective. Enjoy. All right. Thank you, Colton, for joining us on the 911 Nonsense podcast. Can you go ahead and give me an introduction of yourself? Well, my name is Colton Dean. I uh, have been a EMT since uh, 2007. I've been a paramedic since two, 2011. We know each other originally from an ambulance company. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we've stayed pals like the whole time. You know, um, I went to a different ambulance company and I stayed with that ambulance company for 10 years, five years full-time, about three years part-time and then PRN for the rest. And then I've worked at urgent care. Currently I'm working at a hospital, uh, not as a paramedic, but and sterile processing, but I still maintain my license for uh, two PRN gigs. And, and I hope to get on to that, hospitals rapid response but it's been a little difficult so is this something that you grew up wanting to do no (laughs) what did you want to do um i went through the gamut of when i was really little i you know wanted to be an astronaut like every kid and then that that i i toned that down and wanted to be a rock star through in high school like yeah and then when that wasn't quite panning out i Went to California, went to film school, and got a degree in filmmaking. Came back to New Mexico after graduation, because that was 2005, when the film industry was starting to ramp up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm going to get in on the ground floor. I'm a local. They want to hire locals. I'm ready to go. But then that didn't quite pan out. And at the time, two of my closest friends had just gotten into the city fire department and uh they said well why don't you go get your emt license and get in the fire department you know and then you know with our schedule you'll have days off you can trade shifts you can pursue your filmmaking on the side i'm like okay that's that sounds awesome so then i got my basic license in 2007 now had my closest friends been car mechanics and they said hey why don't you come to the car shop and we'll teach you how to fix cars i would have been a car mechanic if they had been (laughs) Uh, farmers growing sorghum I would have been a sorghum farmer now it was it was it was a time where I took out student loans to pursue a dream and then it just didn't quite pan out because I didn't understand how that industry operates like most of us it's about who you know and what you worked on and I had a degree but I hadn't worked on anything and I didn't know anyone and so they weren't calling me and so I then went back to school and uh, got my EMT license, tried to get in the fire department, couldn't get in. Again, it turned out it's about who you're related to sure. mm-hmm. more than who you know. 
at that time. Um, and, you know, I, I did the practice physical, I did the actual physical test, I did the written test, passed those, and I just never got a call back. Just, and so then I went for my intermediate, and then I still didn't get in, then I went for my paramedic. And I was like, well, once I'm my paramedic, I'm going to do this for a little bit, and then I'll think about fire department. And after a few years, I was like, you know, I, I just want the pay, the benefits, the schedule, the retirement. I don't know if I really want to be a firefighter. So maybe sure. I'll let someone else, you know, don't take a seat from someone who really wants to be a firefighter. The funny thing is most of the firefighters just want the pay, yes. the benefits, the schedule, <laughs> yes. and the retirement. Right. You know. uh, if I had stayed in the fire department when I got in, I'd be retiring in two years. And that, that hits kind of hard because <laughs> here I am. My two friends are 17 years in at this point. Yeah. And they got in before the retirement went up. Yeah. So they'll, they'll be eligible in only three years. So. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. A little jealous. Well, <laughs> it's, it's the whole story of if I knew then what I knew now, you sure. know, I mean, and the, the thing is you, you, you get, I turned 40 this year. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And I'm like, I'm running out of decades to be <laughs> playing the start over game. Yeah. You know, I need to really figure out what I want to be when I grow up pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel you. I play that game every day. <laughs> so so no, it, it wasn't something that I dreamt of doing, but I seemed to be good at it, and it got me a job. And ironically, when I changed my status um, to set medic, I then started getting phone calls to work in the movies. So my film degree got me no work, but before I even got my associate's degree, my license <laughs> might got me work on the movies so and if i understand that process correctly you can once you've gotten your time in and you've bought your way into the union you can do almost anything that you want right once you're part of the union you don't necessarily have to stay being a paramedic you can transfer to like doing camera or if there's somebody willing to take you in for those positions, is that correct? So in the New Mexico Union, it covers a handful of crafts. So it covers uh, painters, construction, welders, electricians, set medics, uh, catering, a whole bunch of uh, costumes, props, um, set decks, set you know design, all those all those different fields. And so yes, getting in, I actually got in as a projectionist. Oh. Because a long time ago, I worked at a movie theater in projection <laughs> when we actually had to splice the film together. It's not a thing anymore. It's all digital projection. No. <laughs> and so because I had been doing that here in Albuquerque, out in Ventura, California, in Ojai, California, that plus my film degree got me in the union because they covered projection. Sure. They don't cover projection anymore. But then once I became set medic, it was like, yeah, you can go into set medic. But if someone in props wanted to bring me on board or someone in construction or paint or any of these other departments, I could work for whatever they're, you know, under their, the same, their contract as well. The, the thing, the chagrin that I found out was that this, 
the New Mexico Union doesn't cover camera, which is something that I wanted to do. That's a union based out of Los Angeles. And it's not impossible to get in from New Mexico, but at the time when I was fresh out of school, it was very difficult. There weren't that many productions going on, fewer opportunities to intern, make connections, and to climb that ladder. That's awesome. My, um, my uncle is a cameraman, and he has done a lot of filming, a lot. And I don't remember all of it, but one of, uh, one of my favorite ones that he just recently did was um, There's Something About Pam. Okay. And I believe he did Good Morning America okay. with Jennifer Aniston. Okay. Uh, I think that's what that one was called. Anyways, I'm super jealous. I message him all the time. I'm like, please give me autographs. I want them so bad. Jennifer Aniston, reach out to me. I think you're amazing. <laughs> well, and if you if you become a crew member, then you just kind of become buddy-buddy with them sure. on the project because you're just going to work like they are. My cousin out in Florida is actually a cinematographer. He He's only a few years older than me, but he went on the same path. But his school was a little bit better about connecting him with jobs to get started. And Florida, a bit more, a different market at that time than New Mexico. Mm-hmm. New Mexico now is a great time sure. to get your foot in the door. But around 2005 through 2007, not so much, unless you had good connections. And it's just booming. They're filming so many movies and shows down here now. Um, Did you get the opportunity to be on Rust at all, the movie Rust? I did not. I was asked, but it conflicted with my schedule at the time. And basically how I work, I don't work full-time as a set medic. But there are the full-timers. But... Mm -hmm. A film production can run six days a week, go for two or three months at a time. They'll want a day off occasionally. So when sure. when they need either extra people or some people want to take a few days off, then they start calling um, what are called the day players. And I'm because I've always either worked full time in ambulance, full time at a hospital, urgent care, or been in school. Uh, I've only day played. So they have my number. And they'll, they'll text me and say, are you available on this date? And I'll just say yes or no. And uh, at this point, I'm established enough to where they'll still call me back. Mm-hmm. When you're trying to get started, if you keep saying no, if you keep saying no, keep saying no, they'll be like, ah, that person's not really into this and we'll move on to someone else. But but I've gotten to the point where I, I do have to turn down work or I don't have a day off, especially when it gets busy like spring through summer through mm-hmm. fall. And it's, it's very tempting because it does pay well. But again, these are like uh, yesterday, I did a nine and a half hour day in Santa Fe. But I still had to drive to Santa Fe and then drive back. Mm-hmm. A couple weeks ago, I got offered a three-day run in Pajarito. And, uh, and they said, oh, we'll, we'll put you in a hotel in Los Alamos. Great. I can't. That's like... A vacation with two days notice yeah I need some I got chickens to feed I got a, an elderly dog that needs to be let out because you know uh, in, and walked I, I can't do that anymore sure. so but I can do like the stuff that I'm only gone for the day you know here in town or Santa Fe stuff like that but 
So what is, what is what is your opinion on the events that happened on the set of Rust? So and I'll and I'll pre- preface this with, you know, I can't judge anyone else's experience sure. or their trauma threshold. I just think about what I know from my limited information and generally how what 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 is done on a production is you'll have the main set medic like one person who kind of is there in case people get hurt first aid if they are outside of town it's customary to have an ambulance standby Mm -hmm. and there is a set medic who set up a company a legit ambulance company prc registration and everything transport license solely for uh movie standbys like they're not competing for transport contact tracks in the city or the county they're not competing for inner facility they exist solely for standby for the movies of course that's completely up to the production and times when i've been on an ambulance standby has been for um shooting out in Ghost Ranch, way up north. Mm -hmm. Like that's at least an hour and a half to Española. Yeah. Or where else have I done? Um, Off of a ranch, off of North 14. Like if you go north from Mountain Air, there's that back way to get to Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. There's a a Old West Ranch somewhere out there. You know, that would be a long response time and a long transport time. Um, also, for there was a movie that that built a whole set seven miles north of the casino off of I forty, uh, seven miles north on a dirt road, and we've responded to that casino, so we know how long yes. it is to get there. Then you've got seven miles on a dirt road just to get there. In situations like that, it's very appropriate to have this ambulance on standby. And most of the time, knock on wood, nobody gets hurt. And most of the time, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. But that one time when they didn't have an ambulance, for whatever reason, something went wrong. And since then, when I've done these ambulance standbys like i'm not the main set medic but i i tell the other person i'm like i am of the opinion of a very serious situation happens of load and go because from what i observed on that lapel cam they did not load and go i don't know why and i can't i can't comment as to the reasons why yeah you weren't there you don't know you don't know and i can't i can't pass judgment on decisions that were made that I wasn't there to witness or the reasons but I'm just thinking like by the time the sheriff's deputy got to the scene and started the recording as an experienced paramedic I'm thinking why are they still there did the ambulance get there yet you know I ha- I have to I would have to go back and rewatch it to remember whether the fire department was there yet or not and whether the helicopter had landed by the time that video starts but I'm just thinking like that is that was a load and go situation and you know and the job of a set medic is to kind of think about worst case scenarios like where would i have a helicopter land out here 
you know, where would I, who would I, who, who can I say you're taking over compressions in two minutes Sure. and who is, I'm not even going to delegate that task to them because they're just, they don't, they don't seem right. And who can I tell to, you know, get a car here because we're loading and going, even if we don't have a name, it's like, who could I, you know, kind of figuring out that situation, figuring out scenarios. Am I prepared? What am I prepared to do? And what am I not prepared to do? Because when we're on the ambulance, we have full ALS keep capability, but when your set medic, it's first aid. So you know, it's yeah. you're limited. So just like you would be if you came up on a car accident while you're in your car. Exactly. Like you, you may be a paramedic, a flight paramedic with years of experience. You don't have any equipment. And I've told people like, oh, I feel safer. We got a paramedic here. I'm like, I'm not a wizard. <laughs> I can't pull that IV out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I, I need my tools. So in all of your EMS experience, what has been your most memorable call? You know, I I don't know. I have to, <laughs> I, I have to think about it for a sec. Um, so I can tell you, um, one of my partners when I worked on the ambulance, I hope she's listening to this, we went to a call for an elderly gentleman complaining of chest pain. When we got there, he was Spanish speaking only. And I don't speak a whole lot of Spanish and my partner doesn't speak a whole lot of Spanish. So we were trying to figure out like, you know, assessment tools, had he been sick? Had he had any fevers, chills, coughs? And we're kind of, we're hand miming, you know, because at the time, you know, we don't have any type of translator services working on an ambulance. Like, how is that feasible? I know that uh, the hospital now, I believe, allows people to call in from the ambulance to use a translator, but that wasn't really a big thing back then. So we were sitting in the back and we were trying to figure out if he had diarrhea. And my partner, <laughs> she was saying, you know, in, in the limited amount of Spanish that she knows, she was saying, numero dos mucho. And she leans over and mimics poop coming out of her butt. <laughs> sitting on the bench in the ambulance and I'm sitting on the airway chair which is the chair behind their head and I'm like tears are coming down my face and I'm just <laughs> laughing so hard trying not to roll around and this guy is sitting in the bench and he's laughing at her doing this oh my god that was gonna, probably one of my favorite stories I'm gonna go to Taco Bell be like I'll have the numero dos yeah the numero dos mucho please mucho <laughs> extra mucho <laughs> extra mucho <laughs> oh, I love that. That is that that is one of the memories that lives rent free in my head and will forever live rent free in my head. One thing comes to mind now. Uh, I was on my internship, paramedic internship, with an ambulance company, and we go to a call, and this this guy, this skinny guy, is just a maniac, just. You know, the cops are like, got him cuffed, and he's in a spit hood, and he's Ooh. just being a, a terror. And, and like, yeah, he's on some kind of drugs because he's got scars up and down his arm. There's needles in his, in his apartment, and he's just not listening to us, not doing anything. It's like, well, he's obviously we need to transport him because he's, sure. and so we, 
we load him up, but we like ha- like just putting him in the seat belts doesn't last more than a second. It's like we we then realize we have to restrain him. We we can't even get vitals on this guy. We're just, he just won't hold still. Can't get a blood pressure. Can't get anything. And it's like, so, but we we put him in restraints, and he's just just pulling like all his might trying. It's like God, he's gonna get, go into rhabdo yeah. if we can't like calm him down. This was before we had the protocol to give Versed for agitation, and so so finally, finally we're able to get like pulse ox oxygen's fine pulse is like 140 or something uh get a bgl want to guess what the bgl was hi no no (laughs) that's crazy and so well i don't remember the exact number i don't know if it was like lo on the monitor but it was like teens or something like that wow very low i was like oh well now let's Let's get a line and give this guy some sugar. Yeah. So we have to then kind of like hold an arm while he's in a spit hood, like blah, blah, blah. get an IV on him, push some D50, and he just like relaxes and kind of wakes up. And he's like, oh, hey, guys. Hey, guys, what's going on? Oh, did my sugar get low? Oh, man. <laughs> well, the needles were his insulin needles, yeah. <laughs> and he admitted he did have a history of drug abuse. Hence the scars, and it's like, oh, now I can see those scars are well healed. Yeah, those aren't like fresh old scars. Yes. Uh, took the spit hood off. We put, took him out of the restraints, and he sat comfortably and calmly the rest of the way to the hospital. And he's like, yeah, man, I just uh, sometimes the sugar just gets low. And throughout my time in nine one one, I loved the diabetic calls because it was one of the probably one of the few things we could cure. Yes, your sugar's low. We give you sugar. Problem solved. Have a good night. Do you want to go to the hospital? Nah, cool. Cool. Sign here. (laughs) You're welcome. One of the things I think when I was in my, uh, because I started out as a volunteer firefighter before I got my EMT and we ran on a diabetic call. And that was one of the things that really clicked with me. It really resonated because we did, we took this person and we fixed them. And it happens so fast it's i mean like there's a lot of drugs that work like that but d50 is one of the the cooler ones i think and i remember a few years towards the end of my tenure there um they switched from d50 to just d5 in a 250 bag and i remember like oh i don't know if that's going to be enough sugar you know me me becoming the old crusty medic like i've been doing this for Eight years now, and I know a certain way of doing things, and I know everything. <laughs> yeah, and then and you know I had those like low calls. I'm like, I guess we'll give them a D ten or was it D five? D five. Yeah, we'll try that. We'll see how. And it seemed to work just fine. So you know we had been giving people too much sugar yeah, for how long? It does. It messes with their glucose readings, and it messes with their body for like two weeks after you push a full amp. So I got to the point where I was just pushing half, yeah, half of that D fifty, just enough to get them up and eating, yeah, because of the effects Titrate that that drug had. Yes, like Narcan. Yes, it's awesome. So we had discussed a little about about what your most memorable call was. What would you say is your least memorable or your worst call? Well, obviously, I don't remember it. Well, I've thought about this recently. Now that I haven't done nine one one for a little over two years, um, 
I've thought, what what if I'm repressing something? And and it's funny, since I've asked that question, weird memories from childhood have popped up. Like nothing traumatic. But for example, I remember my mom kept floss on the knob of the radio in her truck so she could like floss at a red light and just mm. and and I had not thought about that in so many years but and I remember one time there was someone riding in the truck with us and they went oh this is gross and they threw it out the window and I was like that's my mom's floss and I like knew where she kept it and I pulled out another strip and put it and he's like no like and I was like <laughs> what are you doing like you're offended <laughs> well yeah because because I was like well that's that's my mom's floss and he was like grossed out by it and it had to be some like friend or something like um but that memory came back and it was so clear like I know that really happened I that wasn't a dream I remember that was a thing and then like some other weird memory came back where we were hiking and we left like tie downs that you like for a truck like those nylon ropes Mm -hmm. to like when we came came to like a a fork we like laid it out in a direction like okay we went this way like that came back and i'm like i know that that was real like nothing traumatic happened or anything like just like so a part of me is wondering what if there's an awful call that i've completely blocked out and what if me just asking this question is like, oh, well, let's start with some easy memories yeah. <laughs> that so that you know it's real. Um, there are some awful calls that I haven't blocked out. I remember when I was a, a new medic how I was – so I didn't get a single nine echo during my internship. And a nine echo is a code, like somebody's got a heart attack or – Cardiac arrest. They need, yeah, they need CPR. They're legally dead. Um, And without resuscitation, they will stay dead. And so I was dreading that. I was dreading like, oh, my my first night. When's my first? You know, some people during internship had three or four already. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm just that white of a cloud that, you know, it hadn't happened yet. And then finally when it did drop, we got pulses back. We transported to the hospital. And then the second one happened which was even crazier because the partner I worked with that that day, she came back like a year later and she was like, oh, hey, remember that code we had about a year ago? I saw the guy at Dion's and he was looking good. And I was like, wow, last time I saw you, you were dead, you know? So the the first one I, I asked the medical director to follow up on and that person had passed away in the ICU. But at least I did my job. I got into the hospital. I got pulses back myself and fire. You know, we got pulses back. We got into the hospital, and they were alive when we left. Uh, the second guy uh, apparently wa- walked out of the ICU with no deficits. And that's so rare. And we never get confirmation, like, from any of our no. patients. Like, very rarely. Yeah. And so, so for a brief moment, I was two for two. And that didn't last. No, it usually doesn't. But but I I'm I'm like that was that was a, a nice month or so where my record as a medic was two for two. But it's not necessarily the craziest call, but the craziest thing is how because this is your city and you still have to live in this city, mm-hmm. 
you'll then drive down a street and you'll be like, oh, that's where that happened. And that, oh, that's where I saw that guy do that thing or that lady do this. Oh, this is where I had to pull over because of that. Those, those echoes of those calls stay with you because there's stuff happening all the time and, and that ne- stuff that never makes the news. Like I'm sure you saw some oh, stuff yeah. where you're like, how did that not get in the paper? How did that not get in the news? And sometimes it's in your own neighborhood and you like, you're driving home from work. I'm like, oh yeah, there's where that happened. Now, there are still multiple crosses that I pass on the freeway mm-hmm. that I can, will go back to scene calls on that I worked codes or had nasty car accidents or whatever, you know. There's still a lot of places in the city, having worked for the local EMS system here for seven or eight years, that there are a lot of places that I will drive past and I'm like, I tell my wife, oh, well, we had a call there. We had a call there. We had a call there, you know. But um, the temptation is to pick one and just tell you the story and, oh, I'll pick a really awful one or I'll pick a really... Not so awful one because I don't want to talk about the awful one. But I, oh, I guess the point I was going to get to before is that, you know, when I was a fresh medic, that was two for two and then that didn't quite last. I would have trouble sleeping, so concerned. Did I do everything? Did I do everything I could? Did I do everything I could? You know, not necessarily nightmares, but like stress dreams where you wake up and you're like, oh, did I give that right dose? And you go through that call again. Mm -hmm. And, that could almost be seen as PTSD, but but then that seemed seemed to fade. Where then, you know, you 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 get your sea legs and you get confident in your assessment skills and your treatment skills, and you're like, I did I did everything I could, and I documented it, and that's just how it is, you know. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. That that concern, see, and I don't know if that's us getting jaded or if that's just you know a like learning to ride a bike like you're not wobbling anymore and it could probably be seen as both you Mm -hmm. know i think a lot of people get offended when we joke about things that may not necessarily be funny to other people and they consider that being jaded as well but that's just part of our coping mechanisms Mm -hmm. you know yeah that one's That one can be hard for people, uh, talking about calls that were rough. Um, Some people don't like to talk about it, and some people do, but I feel like in our field, like for me, a coping mechanism was the more I talked about it, the better I felt about it. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't trying to confirm for me whether or not I got those dosages right, or I felt that I did the best that I could in every situation. But talking about it and being open about it made me feel better. And whether the people wanted to hear it or not, you know, it didn't matter. I There are calls that I haven't shared with my family that are so deep down that I feel like, uh, I don't want to share. I don't want to, I don't want to break that person. I don't yeah. want to break my family member because of something that I saw or did. And and I guess I, I do have a little bit of self-awareness because we are doing a podcast. I, I don't want to Oh, here's the big one that I did. Yeah. And, <laughs> no, I want to know what affects you. When yeah. somebody walks up to you on the street and they're like, oh, you're a paramedic. That's so cool. What's the worst thing you've ever seen? I want to know what you go back to. I, I just pick a story. I just pick one. Just random, huh? Just random. I just pick, oh, well, this one was really bad because this. And it's just the go-to story, you know. 
Do you want to hear the go-to story? Sure. Okay. They got a call for a trouble breathing at a funeral home. Now, that's kind of, that doesn't make sense Mm. on the surface. Lights and sirens there, and they get there, and basically someone was having kind of a panic attack. They were at a funeral. Their loved one had passed away, and they started to hyperventilate, and they started to, like, kind of get all out of, you know, and the family not being you know, jaded medical professionals like saying, just sit down and you'll be fine. Uh, called 911. That's understandable. So we go there and they're crying and they're, and we coach their breathing, like try to take slow, deep breaths. And we cancel fire, um, you know, um, just kind of, and they admit, it's like, oh, I just got so upset because their relative had passed away. And, and, um, and it's like, okay, well, you know, after a few minutes of talking with them, they calmed down. I said, okay, are you feeling better? Yeah, I'm feeling better. Do you want to go to the hospital with ambulance? No. Okay, well, we'll get one more set of vitals, and then I'll need your signature. And I read them the thing. Okay, sign the thing. And uh, it's like, all right. Um, well, then they get up, and they look in the room. And they're like, oh, where, where's his body? Where'd they go? And then I hear the funeral director's like, well, we have to get ready for the next funeral. Oh, goodness. I'm like, we got to go. <laughs> and we cleared the scene. Good luck. So, you know, your loved one died. And I'm sorry you got upset, but funerals are a business and we need to get ready for the next one. Yes, that is hard. And I'm like, like that, no, that doesn't have like gore. That doesn't have. No. But it, it does key into an angle of human suffering that I think is like, really guys, you couldn't have postponed the next funeral or or don't you budget with like a little bit of a more of a buffer than that? See, that would make sense. And that that's kind of hard, right? That's a fine line. Do you yeah. postpone somebody else's funeral? You know, right? or do you or, hold off for however long that's gonna take? Or I mean is in the history of funeral homes has there never been like the bereavement room where when people are really losing it it's like oh we can with dignity with respect move them into this room and then we start the next one yeah. and we come check on them and are you doing okay alrighty you just want to you know however long it may take oh well we can move the casket into this other side room you know and let them grieve a little bit more in private but then we do have to get going by this time you know something like that and it's like uh probably would have cost too much to build that extra room and you know and then you have to hire another person to handle that oh we just uh, can't that's just not in the budget well it's crazy too because so when you talk about a family member getting upset um i had a family friend when i was younger um we were really close with another family that my dad had been best friends with for a long time and the mom had just had a loss and I can't remember what the relation was, but she was at the hospital and that person had passed and she was getting upset and she was hyperventilating. So she stepped outside to get some air and she ended up having a heart attack and dying outside of the hospital from getting so upset with, you know, an unknown medical history. I think she ended up having cardiomegaly and a couple of other, uh, so a, a very large heart and a couple of other um, issues that were unknown at the time. But it just, you never know how things are going to go. And it's kind of crazy when you're running a 911 ambulance. 
how you just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know, I've had people where they're talking to you and they're like, no, nah, I'm fine. My family just called you because they were worried. They look fine. Their vitals are fine. The EKG looks good. And as you're loading them up into the ambulance, they're coding. And then now their whole family is seeing them coding. And now you've got to code them the whole way to the hospital and hope that you get pulses back. Yeah. And to in, in that in that similar vein... Pun intended. I don't know if that pun was intended. Um, the there have been calls where you show up and the family's like, "Save them, save them, save them!" And you get in there like, "We're not saving this one. This one's cold. Yeah, this one's modeled." There are medics out there that will be like, "No, we're not working it." And then there's some that's like, "Oh, we." Others that are like, "Oh, well, we need to at least do ten minutes." And is that for the family or is that for us? Is that, I mean, there, there are times when it's obvious, obvious. Yeah. And you can tell the family, like, this is why it's obvious, you know, with being sensitive. But then there are times when it's not quite obvious. Like, you just know as a professional, but you're like, let's just do our best. And, you know, we know we're not going to get pulses back, but we're going to do everything the way we're supposed to. And, you know... Then we know we tried, you know, but, you know, it, 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 I, hate, I hate those gray areas because a lot of people don't understand that cells start dying immediately yeah. when there's hypoperfusion. You know, the, the, the nuanced science of, like, of circulation isn't that the blood isn't circulating. It's that the cells are breaking down that can sustain life and mm -hmm. and you're you're really not fighting against a lack of oxygen you're fighting against cell damage and metabolic waste buildup because if you get that circulation going well then it's just a bloodstream of acid yeah, that's just going to destroy that. more cells and you, you know that 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 curve <laughs> descends quickly you know and and you, you can't get into that in the moment with family. Like, well, you know, there, there's probably a lot of cellular damage. No, you just have to show up and do the best you can, hope it works out, you know. Do you feel like you could have gotten any more training on maybe discussing that with family when there was somebody who had passed? I think there definitely isn't any, at least in the time I went through. And I certainly feel like I could have benefited be, but most of the time, I was just, you know, I am like, I don't know what to say to these people. Yeah, but... I, I think in my experience, most of the time, I left it to the cops. Yeah. You know, unless it's a very sensitive. Or fire. Yeah, or fire. Unless it was a very sensitive, um, it needs to be done now kind of thing. But like you were saying, if it's if you walk in and it's obvious, um, I can think of only a couple times where it may have been obvious, but we still did it. Yeah. And it was usually for a pediatric patient. Um, and transport it to the hospital because I've done that. Now. Yeah, for for more for family, I think, or maybe both, more for us and more for family. But do you think that's placating or hoping for a miracle? That's hard to say. In the moment, you know, I think you're hoping for a miracle, even though you know, you know, you know, you know that's not gonna that that person isn't gonna come back. That's they're too far. But I think. You don't want it to break you as mm -hmm. much as it's going to break those parents. And yeah, that's that's because at the same time, I've wondered if I've given false hope out of an intent to be compassionate. Mm -hmm. You know, 
and a lot of a lot of people have oh a lot of people have talked about you know maybe you shouldn't transport under certain circumstances i'm like well even if brain death has occurred and they're not coming out of the icu that does buy family time to process it because there have been those calls where someone suddenly drops and it's like your husband or wife for 40 50 years is now just like we just had breakfast and now i'm alone Mm -hmm. after 50 years or 40 years or whatever but if you did load them you took them to the hospital and you as a professional you're like you're they're not coming out of the hospital the family can then be like okay this has happened they probably won't make it. I need to call the kids. I need to call the family. I need to, and I need to sit down and breathe and think through this. Think that in that moment, though, they're thinking that I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say, right? Because I, th- I think we almost are instilling a little bit of hope when we transport, e- even if we know they're not going to make it. But, but when, think, where do you draw that line? I, I think there might be some value in that. Yeah. Like, I don't want to be totally cynical and be like, oh, nah, you're, 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 you're being cruel. Like, it gives them a moment to be like, oh, this might go this way, this might go that way. So I can prepare the family. I can go look for documentation. I can, you know, make sure someone can watch the dog or whatever, you know. Sure. And... And that does have value. And then when the news comes, like, I'm sorry, but they passed away. Okay, I've been thinking about this for the last day or two. And it still hurts and it's still, you know, but but at least when that news comes, maybe there's family there. There's sure. friends there and everyone can kind of, someone had time to get into town. Someone yeah. had time to say, I'm, I can't come to work tomorrow, my relative, etc. You know, and then they can be together as a family rather than just that one person now is alone with the police waiting yeah. for OMI to clean up. That's kind of a frustrating part of working uh, in a company that does interfacility transports. So if a small hospital has a patient, say with a, an active brain bleed, right? And this brain bleed is so bad that it's caused the brain to shift over and is completely compressing the the brain. And, you know, 99% chance that this patient's not going to wake up and this is going to to essentially cause them to stop breathing. Um, And their go-to is take them to another facility. Like they, because they can't handle that. But you're in such a, like, do you take that patient and fly them hundreds of miles away from where all their family is and where they're going to be in another hospital and they're probably going to pass away really soon, like if they even make it past enough hours for to give the family time enough to drive up there? Yeah. You know, or like I don't understand why we do that sometimes. I get, you know, I'm not a decision maker. I don't I don't try to play God. Um, but the facts of experience, I guess, tell me, you know, this patient's not going to make it. And now you're taking them away from their family where they can't die in peace. Yeah. You know, I, I've always been of the practice when a patient is nonverbal to kind of talk through what I'm doing. Cause you don't know how aware they are or not. Sure. And so, all right, we're going to lift you over to the gurney, et cetera. 
but on that on that note of you don't know how aware they are maybe that that transport is terribly uncomfortable yeah in their weakened sick moment maybe it's best to just leave them let them lay where where things took a turn rather than like well we now i gotta pick you up and fly you and go over bumpy roads or whatever we need to do to then go into a new bed you know and new people and you know i mean no i i especially in these rural community communities yes. where they have more a more rich community-based culture yeah it does seem more of a harm to like take them take them to the city to die yeah no that's that is hard that's hard for me that's one of the harder ones that you're sitting there and you're like doctor you know you're sending this person out um you know, I had a, a, out in a rural community, we had a patient who had a brain bleed. It was a sudden brain bleed. He was a younger person and they were literally flying him to a larger hospital just for organ donation. I don't know a whole lot about organ donation, but I know that if you use drugs, if you have a bad liver from alcohol use, if you, you know, there's, there's very fine line where they can actually use the organs mm -hmm. um and even the doctor had mentioned you know this this patient probably isn't a good organ donation but we still want him to go out and he was riding a fine line anyways they were giving him epi every like five to ten minutes just to keep his heart going even though he had a huge brain bleed with a mm -hmm. shift and that's you're just like why why are you doing why are what? you taking him away from family yeah like, I know that's hard, and I know that's hard for them. And have you explained to them that he's not going to make it, that he was going for organ donation, you know? Sometimes they do tell him, and sometimes they don't. And that can be frustrating, too, because that forces us to have hard conversations. Yeah. When we're not trained for that, in most cases. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, so I guess getting back to the, the question, I, I think maybe some emphasis on counseling skills would be more beneficial than some of these arduous boot camp tactics of paramedic school you know especially in hindsight it's like okay did did we have to grill that hard could could we have learned the same information and developed those same skills and then maybe learned a little spanish so we can communicate better sure. in medical like medical spanish depending or, on where you're located yeah or basic sign language so we can communicate with the patient better. Um, you know, I maybe that should have been part of EMT basic. You know, and then so by the time you go through paramedic school, it's like, yeah, I already know how to do that. Sure. You know, that would make sense, right? Yeah. Um, or give you the option if you want to learn one or the other. But uh, we're getting ready to wrap up. Okay. So I want to give you the opportunity to talk about anything that you um, maybe participate in or that you strongly believe in that you want to share with the community. So we need to think outside the box. And I mean that liter literally and figuratively, the box of the ambulance. Mm -hmm. I'm a political nerd. Um, a few years ago, a firefighter friend of mine uh, pointed me, brought, brought something up. They, I ran into them randomly and they said, ah, have you heard about this bill in the state legislature that's going to put an RN in every school? I'm like, no. It's like, yeah, what about us paramedics? I'm like, yeah, what about us paramedics? 
I go look up that bill, and indeed, this was in 2019, um, there was a bill that had it passed, it would have mandated that every public school and every public charter school hire one full-time RN. Well, that's a great idea, but they can't even staff the hospitals in the city. How are we going to get an, a full-time RN out to Magdalena or Clovis or, you know, Farmington or... I don't think Daddle, Daddle maybe. Uh, you know, the point is these rural communities that where there are volunteer EMS already. Much of New Mexico relies upon volunteer EMTs and paramedics who have side jobs uh, to take turns keeping the radio by their bed. And when that call comes in, they got to get up in the middle of the night. They drive to wherever the ambulance is. They get the ambulance. They go, they pick up the patient, they take them to the hospital. You're talking two-hour response, sure. maybe an hour transport. And I'm thinking to myself, what if a par paramedic was included in that bill? Put a full-time paramedic. Now, of course, everyone I talk to about that is like, well, a paramedic can't do what a nurse does. Well, those of us who are paramedics know that's not true. And the general public doesn't really know what a nurse does or what a paramedic does. A paramedic drives an ambulance from their perspective. Yep. And a nurse helps the doctor. But then those of us in the profession are like, well, what skills are done? That is what's important. And what I came to realize is the EMTs and paramedics is we're, we're stuck in the box. We think ambulance, EMT, ambulance, paramedic, ambulance. Really, it's a platform of skills to address emergencies you may encounter in the 911 setting. It would not be economic to put a doctor on every ambulance. No. So what some doctors did is they say, well, what do we need? We need IV skills. We need airway skills. We need cardiac monitoring. We need certain cardiac drugs. We need allergy uh, identification and treatment. Uh, and we'll teach these people to do those specific skills and we'll tell them what they can do and what they can't do. And if they can't figure out one of those, they can call us and ask for guidance. That's what EMS is. And there are special skills. There's the flight paramedic, critical care, where here are some more skills for more specific things. And in recent years, they've developed the community paramedic. Here are some more skills based on your established training. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I'm hearing we, there's a provider shortage for mental health. There's a provider sh shortage for counseling there. And I'm thinking to myself, what tasks could be delegated to an experienced paramedic that could help alleviate this shortage? We need to think outside the box. So I have lately been trying to talk to state legislators whenever I see these bills come up about what a paramedic really is. And even an EMT, I'm starting with paramedics because we have more skills, more training. I think if that sort of direction were pursued, a physician would be more comfortable with a paramedic sure. than an EMT basic but I don't want to exclude EMT basics or intermediates. I fully believe an experienced EMT basic could perform 
the job of a school nurse. You pay them full time. Maybe you base the ambulance at the school. Maybe there's a bunk and they do their 48 hour tour where they're sleeping in the back. They respond to calls. And during the week, kids come in with owies and bruises and they are following county or state protocols. And they, if there's something that doesn't quite fit, like they call a doc and they get guidance and maybe call for an ALS intercept if they're not ALS themselves. How many times have we responded to a school where the school nurse is like, okay, what did you do for them? Oh, I called you guys. You didn't give them oxygen. You didn't splint the bone. You didn't give them epinephrine. No, we don't do that. So then don't tell me <laughs> that a paramedic can't do your job because we could have protocols and we could do stuff. And, and even if the doctor says, I don't want you doing any of that, I want you to do three things. Okay, those will be our protocols in the school setting. I think, and I think the problem is that we don't stand up for ourselves. So when that bill was in play, I went up to Santa Fe, I went to the roundhouse at like nine in the morning, and I sat in that committee, and uh, when they said, is there anybody who, and it's open to the public, most of those committee meetings are open to the public, and now you can do it through Zoom. Um, but they said, is there anyone in uh, support of this bill? Two people stood up. Or is there anyone in opposition for this bill? I stood up, and one other person stood up. And then they, when it's not that many people and they have enough time, they'll say, well, what are your reasons? And I said, I'm an experienced paramedic, and I don't want to take away from the nurses, but I think you're leaving out a valuable resource, which are paramedics. And afterward, a person who in support then stood up and says, you know, I love my paramedics, but uh, in my years as a school nurse, I've had to deliver three babies. Like, oh, oh, you, you deliver babies? So do we. I mean, now I didn't have a chance to respond in that committee meeting. But then she said, and unfortunately, sometimes we have drug overdoses, and I've had to bag breathe for students. Well, we bag breathe <laughs> as well. Yeah. So... She didn't understand that she was actually helping my point, but of course the members of the state legislators on the committee, none of them were a paramedic. There, there were a couple nurses, there was one retired physician, but I don't know to the extent that they understand EMS. Afterwards, one of those retired physicians, a legislator named Bill Pratt, who has since passed away, he says to me, you may not intend to be stepping on people's toes, but there may be a perception that you're stepping on people's toes, and certain people might react that you're trying to take something away. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not. And he says, well, but that may be the perception. So, you know, use caution when pursuing this, but I like your idea. I uh, says, but my suggestion is I think the nursing commission and the paramedic commission should get together and... Uh, work out an arrangement and then maybe present a bill in the future. And I said, you know what, Representative Pratt? There is no paramedic commission. We have a bureau that processes our licenses and doles out punishment when needed. The nursing board, the board of nursing is appointed by the governor. There is no governing board for paramedics and EMS in New Mexico. Maybe there should be. Maybe there should be. When I was reaching out to people like, hey, call your state legislator, call, or call your state rep, call representative, call your state senator, um, 
especially the ones on the Health and Human Services Committee, tell them that they should include paramedics. A lot of people are like, oh, oh Colton, and your political nonsense, what are you going on about now? Because I do have a rep, a reputation, <laughs> for <laughs> being vocal, yes, defiant, and you know when I think I'm right, I'm not shy about letting people know that. And unfortunately, that hasn't rallied the troops to support our profession. So I encourage. Now I'm 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 kind of done with my time. I don't think I'll ever get in an ambulance again. Um, I'm trying to work my way into a different career field. But my concern, when, when I became a paramedic, the burnout rate was three to five years. Now I hear it's like one to three at most, if that. In a high, probably in a high call volume setting, yeah. So my concern are for the new people who at one point I was, I'm gonna be a paramedic. I'm like, all right, once you've done one to three years in the ambulance, where are you going to go? You're going to go back to school to be a nurse, and you're going to regret your, your wasted time and money, and or you're going to go on to PA school. So like advice that I give young paramedics and EMPs, stay in school because you're not gonna, this is not a career. Unless you go in the fire department, this is not a career, unfortunately. And the only reason it isn't is because we haven't organized the way the nurses have. Yeah. There are nurses in the ER, there's nurses on the step-down unit, there's nurses who respond to your home, there's nurses who fly, there's nurses in the OR, there's nurses in hospice, there's nurses in the nursing home. I'm like, nurses can do everything. Oh, but paramedics just drive ambulances. And I'm like, no, no. And I don't want to pit paramedics against nurses, but I think nurses are secure enough in the industry, in their station, that they could allow paramedics to pick up the slack that they can't seem to fill the positions. No matter how many, there's like three nursing classes a year at the community college. We've got the university, we've got other community colleges around town. How many paramedics do they crank out? Compared, comparatively, not as many, but with all those nurses, they can't meet the demand. Well, because nursing has a high burnout too. True, but at least in the meantime, it pays well. It does pay much well, better, and you can move and, wherever you want with the compact license. And why isn't there a paramedic compact? Well, everybody knows there's the national, but the national registry. Um, in, in my job, for example, I have a national registry. I've had the national registry since 2011, but I still had to obtain a Texas license, an Arizona license, and a Colorado license in, able, in order to be able to transport patients from those states. That's silly. It's it, silly. That is silly. That's insane. Because you are originating from New Mexico. Yes. So, because I asked that question a long time ago, like if I'm on ground ambulance, if I'm transporting someone to Colorado and I come across an accident, am I technically operating outside the scope? And, I'm, I, and someone then explained like, well, technically you're still covered under New Mexico, you know, that I don't think you would get nailed to the wall for that. But, but no, there should be a compact among states like, oh, if you have a paramedic license in that state, it's good in these states. 
but they just drive the ambulances. What do we need them for? If we push for more skills in more nuanced areas, then there will be a path for that three-year medic who's just starting paramedic school this summer and will finish in a year, in three years, when they're like, what have I done with my time? They'll ha- maybe they can uh, do assessments for counselors. Maybe they can, um, maybe there'll be a position in the schools. Um, where, wherever there needs to be specialized skills in a specialized setting, I think parents could fill the role. We just need an MD or a DO to take that challenge on and train their trusted group to get it started and and go from there. I mean, I'm I'm it's not for me, it's for the next generation. Sure. I'm 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 going to I'm done. <laughs> I need to I'm I'm doing something else, you yeah. know, going forward. I don't think you're the only one that feels that way. So I guess I my ask for other paramedics and EMTs out there is get to know your state legislators, get to know your city councilors. I can help you find them if you want and get have them understand what potential we have. Nurses listening. Let you know let us let us in. Let us in. Let us in. <laughs> We're knocking at the doors. You know, <laughs> if if they could staff them with nurses they would, but they can't. Here's a resource that is going to waste. I believe changes to the Nurse Practice Act, their scope of practice has to be done through the legislature. Like a bill has to be passed and signed by the governor. That's interesting. Whereas if we want to learn an additional skill, a physician just has to say, I'm giving you this. Yeah. I'm teaching you how to do this and I'm certifying that you're skilled in it. So we need to think outside the box. We need to think about the younger generation so that they actually have a career an ambulance and not feel like they have to go to fire, that they have to be a firefighter, that they have to then go back to nursing school, that they have to then get out of the profession to make a living, to move to other parts of the country, to save for retirement, to, you know. Yeah, all of the things. Well, that was awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And I don't doubt that people will be listening. I hope so. If anyone wants to try and pursue that, uh, I'm easy to find on social media or... And with your permission, I can put your information on the on the episode. Sure. Perfect. All right. Well, Colton, thank you so much for coming out today. I appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening. Before we wrap up, we have a few important announcements to share with you. Firstly, we're excited to announce the launch of our brand new 911 Nonsense Facebook group page. It's a community where everyone can go to connect, share ideas, discuss topics from the show, and get all of the most recent updates about the podcast. We'd love to have you join us and be part of the conversation. Next, we want to ask you to rate and review our podcast on your preferred platform. Your feedback means the world to us and helps us reach a wider audience. By rating and reviewing the show, you'll be supporting us in a big way and helping others discover 911 Nonsense. If you enjoy what we do and would like to support the podcast even further, we have a few options available. You can visit samspursuit.com to find the links to our 911 Nonsense merch page and our recently released Noon Gear page. Every contribution, no matter the size, goes a long way in helping us continue to better the podcast. We know that not everyone is comfortable being on the podcast, but we still want to hear your stories and experiences. 
If you have a compelling story and would like to share it to be read by me in a future episode, please reach out to us via email at 911nonsense at gmail.com or through our website's contact section. If you choose to be anonymous, we'll make sure to respect your privacy while sharing your story in a way that resonates with our audience. Thank you again for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and look forward to bringing you more engaging content in the future. See you next week.